Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nussbaumer Nafflick. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Greetings from Zurich, Switzerland. We've just wrapped up Storytelling with Data's 2019 European tour with workshops in Dublin, Copenhagen, and Zurich. As a reminder, the final public workshop this year will be in Chicago on Wednesday, October 16th. We'll have the entire team there for you to meet in person. And we are also, for the first time ever, offering a live stream option for people to join from anywhere in the world. Details and registration at storytellingwithdata.com slash public dash workshops. While in Copenhagen, I had the opportunity to sit down with Data Klubin podcasters Seren Christian Sondergaard Paulsen and Jens Jakob Arup for a great conversation. Tune in to this replay where we talk about how story can help save us from death by data, the importance of starting low tech, and ideas for shifting organizational culture to become truly data driven. I also talk about my soon to be released second book, Storytelling with Data Let's Practice. Hope you enjoy this repost of the Data Klubin podcast. Facts on a slide, data in a spreadsheet, these things are not inherently memorable, but stories are. Yeah. And where we can find ways to weave the facts or the data into stories, that's when we can get people's attention and build credibility and drive them to some sort of action, which is the point of all of this anyway. We are on air. We are on air. Yeah, and we speak English <laughs> today. And the reason why we speak English today, or American, or whatever we should call it, is because we have an international data rock star <laughs> in the studio. And um, that's you, Cole. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi. And welcome to uh, Data Club. Um, can you do a short introduction of yourself? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my name's Cole, and I think of what I do as telling stories with data. So I've done that over the course of my career in a number of different analytical roles, um, starting out in banking, uh, in credit risk management. And I think for me, that was the first place that I really started seeing the value of taking numbers and turning them into pictures, yeah. right, where you can use that to get people's attention and help them understand something in a new way. And that was really where my love for visualizing data started. Yeah. And and, and, and you seem really loved about it because you have you have just released a new book or uh, just about. Just so about. Uh, yeah, it's up yeah. for pre-sales now. Yeah. Uh, it is written, yeah. uh, but the book will come out a little bit later this year in October. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure thing. Uh, I'll back up and talk a little bit about the first book yeah. first, mm-hmm. uh, because this one builds on that. So Storytelling with Data, a data visualization guide for business professionals, was published in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really came out of doing workshops for many years and codifying the lessons that I teach in workshops. And so the book goes through several different lessons on how do you not only visualize data effectively, but weave it into a story and work to understand your audience. So it's going to be a story that resonates with them and looks at a lot of practical real world examples that cross many different industries as a way to illustrate that. 
And so the next book is called Storytelling with Data, Let's Practice. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it follows the same core lessons in the original, uh, but is really focused on the practical application. And so each chapter is organized into three different sets of exercises. There's practice with Cole where I pose a a case study or an exercise that you're meant to work through on your own, but then I also go through my solution or a potential solution Mm. as a way to illustrate and reinforce the lessons. Mm. And this is a way to bring in a ton of new examples and corner cases and uh, get uh, some really interesting uh, insights, I think, uh, in different areas. And then the second exercise section is practice on your own where it's similar sort of exercises, but then without any prescribed solutions. This will be useful for individuals who are wanting to practice more or for university instructors teaching the content. So we have over 100 universities around the world using the original book as a textbook. So this will help make that easier. And then the final exercise section within each chapter is practice at work. So you've done this in theory, you've done it with some canned examples. Now take a project you are facing in the workplace and here's how you break it into component pieces and apply the different lessons and who to get feedback from and when to get feedback and really practical uh, advice and tips and strategies, both for, you know, for the analyst or for really anybody who needs to communicate with data, as well as for the people who are supporting them, right? Their managers, uh, learning and development teams and organizations and so forth. Mm. And, and, and we should should practice right because even though we have been doing visualizations for hundreds of years we have uh, spoken the language of our natural language for, for the last maybe 500 or 1000 of years but we still have a gap visual visualizing or, or combining the data in in, in storytelling right? absolutely yeah, so and, and, and why <laughs> well, I think I think some of it comes back to how we're educated or traditional education, right? The, where people often at some point choose either to go a very technical path or a very non-technical path. Mm. And it ends up being our technical folks who are adept, uh, especially with all of the data we have today, at digging through that data, understanding how to analyze it and do interesting things with it. And then it's the non-technical folks who know how to tell the stories and get people's attention and communicate. Uh, But there's a gap between those two because the people who go heavily technical from a education standpoint don't often get the communication pieces or the the softer side, if you will, though it drives me crazy that people call it a softer side (laughs) because you can actually be very strategic in how you use components of story to communicate. Yeah, especially also because often what we would like to do with data and data visualization is to have people make actions and, yes. and you know, improve their decisions. And that's why you need the storytelling. Because yes. when you tell stories, people understand things and then they are actually able to make uh, make decisions yeah. afterwards. Exactly. Facts yeah. on a slide, data in a spreadsheet, these things are not inherently memorable, but yeah. stories are. Yeah. And where we can find ways to weave the facts or the data into stories, that's when we can get people's attention and build credibility and drive them to some sort of action, which is the point of all of this anyway. Exactly, exactly. And and, and I think actually that, that topic, maybe we should dig a, a, a bit deeper because when I speak to organizations, they talk about uh, they have gathered a lot of data, they have visualized a lot of data, they have produced a lot of uh, reports and so forth. But the knowing doing gap is 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 quite um, it's it's out there. We 
don't know how to act on, uh, on on top of our reports. We don't know how what to do when we see the 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 numbers. Do we ha- can, can you uh, yeah, elaborate on that? Yeah, I think one of the things that happens is it, it's part of the evolution, right? So we we started off not having so much data, and then suddenly we have a lot of data, and so it's figuring out how do we put that somewhere where people can access it and do things with it. Next comes let's build a bunch of reports and push data out. Yeah. The challenge there is every is faced every day with a ton of data. So when we give our audience more data, it's really easy for the response to be, oh, that's interesting. And then they move on to something else. Mm. Or worse, they ask for more data, right? <laughs> and so it becomes this death by data where we're chasing after more data, more data, more data, more data. And we're never, we're never answering the question of so what? Mm. And for me, that's the thing that has to happen more because if you don't just show data, but you take it to the next step, and by you, I mean the person who's working with the data, the person who's communicating the data, say not only here is the data, but here is something we could do with this data. Mm. Here's a discussion we could drive or an action we could take, or here's how it shows us that we should continue doing the things we've been doing, or here's where we should maybe do things differently. Here's some options to choose from. That as soon as you take the conversation there, now... Any discussion that ensues is no longer about the graph or about getting more data. It's about what do we do with the data? How do we act more smartly because of what we now know? And this is a place that the analytical process typically doesn't go here. It typically stops short. Mm -hmm. So you think of the typical analytical process. You maybe start with a question or a hypothesis. Then you gather the data. You clean the data. You analyze the data. And at that point, we often throw it in a graph or a series of graphs, and we stop there. Mm -hmm. And... If we take it to that next step, though, and say, not only here's the graph, but here, audience, is what you should do with the graph. Even if you focus on what they think is the wrong thing, it starts the right sort of conversation. Mm. And it's a conversation that often gets missed when we stop at simply showing the data. So in our workshops, we focus very um, intensely on, you know, don't stop there. Take it another step. And by doing this and getting to know your audience better and what they care about will help you refine how you do this going forward. And it feels uncomfortable at first if Mm -hmm. it's not a space um, that, you know, as an analyst or the person working with the data that you've been venturing into, right? There's sometimes this idea that, uh, you know, that we should, our, our role is simply to serve up data and people will do with it what they will. The challenge is, they typically don't do anything with it when <laughs> we just serve it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and how do we identify the, the audience? Because we know their names, we know their positions, but, but that is not enough in, in order to send the right, right messages. To um, communicate effectively, we have to step outside of ourselves and think about what we want to communicate, not from our perspective, right? Which is the easy, the natural way to do it. Mm. It's very easy for me to create a report or a presentation on my project mm. or my data. It's a much harder thing to step outside of myself and create that first and foremost for my audience, yeah. right? Thinking about who are they? You know, not only their names, but what motivates them? What keeps them up at night? Because mm-hmm. then what you can do is you can frame your data and what you need your audience to do with it in terms of the things that matter to them. Mm-hmm. And when you can do that, then you get their attention and then you get some really productive conversations.
you, you distinguish between two different kinds of uh, of analysis. We we and it was more or less what you were talking about before. You have the the uh, the exploratory and then the explanatory. Could yes. you elaborate on that? Yeah. So exploratory part is really what it sounds like. It's that exploration of the data, uh, and this is typically something we do, especially if we have new data or data that's been just been refreshed to figure out you know what's interesting here. How can we combine it in different ways? What sort of different lenses can we look at to get to know our data better? So mm -hmm. for me, that's the exploratory process mm -hmm. in, a, in a really simplified um, description. Mm -hmm. So once you've done that, though, and you've explored the data, and now you've figured out something interesting about it that someone else might care about, then we should transition into explanatory space. That mm -hmm. is where we have something specific we want to communicate to somebody specific. And we make this distinction almost any time that we teach on this topic, because part of the challenge is people take their exploration of the data and try to communicate with that, mm -hmm. uh, which fails for a lot of reasons. Um, I sometimes uh, liken the distinction to hunting for pearls in oysters, right? Mm -hmm. Where the exploratory process is that process of opening up oyster shell after oyster shell, sometimes hundreds of oyster shells to find a pearl, right? Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about the data. At the end of that process, there is an understandable desire to want to take all those several hundred oyster shells and hand them over to our audience, mm -hmm. right? It's evidence of robustness of the work that was done. It, it took a lot of time. We sort of want them to feel some of that pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when we do that, it's sort of like saying to our audience, all right, folks, I already know where the pearls are, but let's see if you can find them too. <laughs> Which sounds silly when I yeah. say it like that, but we do that too often where we give our audience way more data than they actually need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's a process though, right? Because for narrowing it down to the pearls and not showing all of the oyster shells, we have to build credibility with our audience that we're focusing on the right things. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a process to get there. And sometimes what it can mean over time is weaning them off all of the data by still having the data there, but focusing less on the what and more about the why, right? Mm -hmm. What do we do with this? What could we do with this? And over time, as your audience recognizes that you're focusing on the right things, you're driving the right sort of conversations or understanding in the data, you can wean them off some of the detail. Sure, sure. Do you think there's a big difference in the techniques that you use for visualizing in the two different uh Yeah, I think there can be. So on the exploratory side, this is behind the scenes, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody else sees this. You see it, your colleagues see it. So there you can use whatever means is going to be effective for you, right? The person mm -hmm. who's exploring the data. When we go to explanatory though, then again, we have to shift gears and be thinking first and foremost about our audience. Mm -hmm. And so we might be using fancy tools and complicated visuals to see the story behind the scenes. But when it comes to communicating that to someone else, We have to allow ourselves to step out of those and think about how do we make the insight that we want to get across clear to our audience. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that means iterating through different views of the data and be really specific on what we want to get across to our audience so we can choose a view that will help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. The challenge is any graph that we make, we are going to understand because we know the data, we know what to look at. But for an audience who doesn't live in our head, we actually have to take intentional steps to help facilitate that understanding. So that comes to you know both the sort of graphical form that we choose, but then also how do we direct attention within it? How do we put words around it to make that story clear? Sure, 
Yeah, I think a lot of the sorry, I think a lot of the users also, uh, you know, are creating uh, the the listeners are, are creating uh, dashboards yeah. or reports. Where would you put that into? If we once again distinguish between those two areas, where yeah, would you put great that? Great question. Mm-hmm. So for me, dashboarding, and I'd throw any sort of regular reporting into this as well. For me, mm-hmm. that sits more in the exploration mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely a necessary and helpful thing. But dashboards, and, and when I think of dashboard, I think of something that has a lot of graphs or visual in a condensed space, which sure. allows you to be able to look through your data and see quickly where are things in line with our expectations, mm. where are they not in line with our expectations. So the dashboard becomes a tool that helps us find the stories faster. Mm. But then my view is once we've used the dashboard or the regular report to find the stories, there's in incredible value in taking those stories out of the dashboard or the regular report and doing everything that we talk about in in the book and the workshops of directing our audience's attention and choosing a visual display that's going to work in that specific instance and Mm. decluttering and putting the story around it. I think one of the complications I see sometimes is people try to use the dashboard to tell the story or try to use the monthly report to tell the story. Mm. And that's not, that's sort of mixing, uh, mixing things up. The, the, the dashboard, the report isn't the thing that you use to tell the story. That's the thing you use to find the story yeah. and then be clear about how do you get that message across to your audience mm. without but, but, the constraints. Because that that, that that leads me to, to, or maybe you have already answered it, because I, I was thinking on all these static tools, yep. we, Tableau, oh, I don't know if we can call them static, but you you use a lot of wording statements, yes. concise statements to tell the story. And that is tough to build into a That doesn't a work in an interactive no, environment. No, no. And it's not meant to work in an interactive no, environment because no. the interactive environment is what you use to, to figure out your data and explore it and find the nuances and go down a path and realize there's nothing there and go down another path and realize there's nothing there and then find the story. And so for me, then you take it out of the dashboard, right? Because you're right. The, the dashboard is not meant to have a bunch of words no, on no. it or be the thing that explains it. Do, do, do you have a, a, a great formula for telling the story? You're talk, talking about storyboards and uh, not a three formula minute, per uh, se, but uh, yeah, different strategies yeah, to yeah, employ yeah. for sure. Yeah. So uh, in our workshops, we almost every time we have people storyboard. So uh, you know, we give them stickies, little sticky notes, and have them consider a project that they're working on. They spend some time getting really clear on what is the core message that we want to get across, and then they spend time storyboarding. And so for me personally, I, I storyboard anytime I'm going to be going through any new content. It's just, for me, it's a way of organizing the thoughts in my head and getting them out into the physical world uh, in a way that I can see them and rearrange them. And I divide it into a couple distinct processes when I storyboard. So first I brainstorm. So I get myself a, a pile of post-it notes and I just start writing down ideas without any concern of, you know, do they make it into the final communication or what order am I going to use or how do I tie things together? I just put ideas down. And it really only takes a couple of minutes of doing this. And then you can step back and start rearranging and sorting and grouping similar things and maybe starting to put some structure around it that'll help you tie things together and help them make sense to someone else. Also, one really important thing that happens when you do this really tactile uh, exercise is I can write down an idea on a post-it note and hold that idea in my hand and consider, does this help me get my main message across called the big idea? And I can 
decide, no, it doesn't. And mm. I'll have a discard pile. Mm. And this is one important thing because I think when we go straight to our tools, right? If we go straight to PowerPoint and start building a slide uh, or a deck, there's this feeling that what we create needs to answer every possible question that mm. might come up. Whereas when we start low tech and we can consider ideas and ask ourselves, does this help me? do what I need to do, right? Does it serve the intended message? We can decide, no, it doesn't, and mm. not include it. And so we probably still need to know the answer if the question comes up. But one big benefit you get uh, out of this planning part of the process is typically much shorter communications. Right? So you don't yeah. get these 80-page decks. You get maybe a 10-page deck, which means you can then be really targeted and focus on making that shorter communication really effective. Yeah, because that's often one of the biggest mistakes is that you start within your tool. Yes. So you start, whether it's PowerPoint, or whether it's Power BI or whatever it is, but you start in your tool, but actually you get a much better uh, result if you start very analog. So yeah. with the post-its, or actually we brought uh, to you today our data visualization oh, kit. Uh, and the data visualization kit, that's just uh, three pieces of paper. Awesome. So so you start wireframing instead yep. when you also, that's when you build uh, dashboards or whatever. So actually that's, at least from my perspective, one of the biggest recommendations I have to people is that Don't start in your tool. Right. Start because that leads to another creative process instead. Yeah, and there are all sorts of dangers when we start in our tools. You know, we're constrained by what we know how to do in mm. them, or we become attached to what we create. Mm. Right. So mm. that once, because once you've spent time putting together something, it's hard to let it go. Whereas if it's an idea on a post-it note, that's easy to let go of. Yeah, or maybe you, if you're more creative, you think, okay, I haven't used this data visualization in some time, so sure. now I need to use that one. <laughs> <laughs> And then all of a sudden you the have- pie chart. <laughs> yeah, Obviously the pie chart. <laughs> We haven't used that for many years, no. <laughs> Um, you, um, you, you, you I, I think you touched a bit about it, And, and 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 we talked about the the new book we should practice but who should practice because i think that the hardest trend in denmark is to be a data scientist and we talk about data wranglers and and so forth mm -hmm. but but the, the, the data storytellers should maybe be one of the 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 hardest <laughs> topics of the the, the 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 hardest positions in in denmark because one of the biggest trends is also data literacy yes So in, in in order for the the, the whole com organization to 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 to, uh, to talk about uh, data and of the language of data, everyone should practice data storytelling. Everyone or, should. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so we're in a space where everybody nearly in the world today, every job, every industry, you're asked to touch data in some way, to do something with data, right? We collect so much data, it's everywhere, it's all around us. So my perspective is anyone that ever needs to communicate a number mm -hmm. should be practicing how to do that. Uh, whether it's, you know, your data scientists who are highly trained on the technical side because they they need probably less practice now on the technical side. They have developed those skills, but they need to be able to communicate effectively with people who do not have those skills. So I'm a huge believer that there's a tremendous amount of value to be obtained by work that's already being done, that just isn't being communicated as effectively as it could be. So you know, data scientist has become this new sexy role, which is great, right? We have a lot yeah. of data. We need people who can wrangle that data and yeah. do things with yeah. it. But we also need people who can then turn that into common language yeah. so that it can be used throughout an organization to help everybody do things that are smarter. And so that means, you know, coming back to this idea of data literacy, it's not just the analyst or the data 
data scientist or the person working with the data who needs to have this language. The C-suite needs it uh, so that they can be making data-driven decisions. Uh, managers need it so they can be giving their teams good feedback. People in all sorts of different roles need it so that they're speaking a common language and can hold each other accountable to analyzing data in an effective way and communicating it truthfully. So yeah, everybody needs this skill set. And and, and, and and I think everybody needs a lot of skill sets because everybody wants to be, be data driven and sometimes it's a bottom up a way to, to it it's it's it might be one person that thinks data is great or in other cases it's it's a top down approach, the C suite it yep. needs to uh, oh, oh, And it needs been, to be both for it yeah, to work. Yeah. And, and and how how do we promote data in, in organization? Is it by is it by uh, good storytelling or where should we start yeah, in, in the I data culture or, or creating the data culture? It's all of it, right? Yeah. Which sounds uh, sounds intimidating and, and and doesn't need to be. But yeah, I think some of it is the storytelling. It's the it's the pairing visualizing data, right? And looking at data in a way that's going to be accessible to our audience and building that into a story. And so advice that I'll often give is start in small ways, right? Start in low risk areas. You don't go into the next board meeting and say, hey folks, today we're going to do something different. Today I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you a story, right? You start in small cases where you know, maybe in the graph you would normally have given out, you take a few extra minutes to be thoughtful about, well, where do I actually want my audience to look? How can I facilitate that? Maybe I'll make everything gray and use color just sparingly of where I'd like my audience to look. Or maybe this time I put words around it. I put a takeaway title that tells my audience as soon as they read the graph title what they're meant to take out of the graph. And these small things over time, what you'll find is they build both confidence, I think, in the individual for, hey, I can be putting more of a stake in the ground. I can be, uh, you know, easing my audience towards telling stories in a way that uh, helps us have better conversations and drives better behaviors, uh, but then also builds your credibility with those around you. And I I see in organizations that one way of helping this spread is to simply start doing good work. And other people gravitate towards that and start to emulate it. So when you talk about bottoms up, that can be one way to make that happen. It doesn't happen easily if you don't have support from top down as well. And so figuring out how do you how do you build a culture that values data and when do you use data and when do you not? So I think part of the pause I take when organizations say we want to be data driven is that they apply it across the board. We want to be data driven in everything, which is not actually a smart way to do things, it's particularly if you haven't been data driven historically, right? It's too big of a shift. And so then it just becomes speak and, and nothing happens. But thinking about in what cases do we want to use data to help us do something in a smarter way, being really specific about what data does that mean we collect? How does it mean we analyze it? What sort of stories do we want to be able to potentially tell with it? What do we do if those stories don't play out in the way we expect? And doing that in small ways first as a way of building uh, that culture over time. Because you can't just go from not being data-driven to say, we want to be data-driven, and then that happens. It's not how it works. Um, And it may mean hiring a different skill set as well. So so how do we identify those cases? The cases where we would want to be data-driven? Yeah. I think where we can identify that there is data that we either have or that we could collect that would 
maybe challenge the way that we've done things historically would be spaces that I would look for first to say, hey, we've always been doing things this one way in this one space. Let's look at the data and and see if if that confirms we should keep doing things that way or if it means we might want to try something new. I would like to get back to a topic that we we touched. Uh, you know, becoming uh, being data driven often that leads to investments in in different tools. Uh, and and speaking of tools, then uh, one of the new buzzwords that's uh, augmented analytics, mm. uh, which is a, a Gartner favorite right now. <laughs> um, and actually, well, if you at least if you uh, if you listen to Gartner and also to look into some of the tools, they'll say, well, we do all what's in your book. Because uh, now now it's just uh, augmented. We can uh, present the now text also. You know, we can interpret what's actually in the in the in the in the, in the different uh, different visuals. So no tool is going to solve this problem for mm. us. Uh, the tool that we need to tell effective stories with data, in my opinion, it resides in our heads. Mm. Right? You need a brain. You need a person who not only knows the data and how to look at it and analyze it, but also knows the context, knows the business setting, and can help weave those things together. I think where augmented analytics can really help us is in being faster at identifying some of the interesting things. Right? Mm. Going back to that idea of the pearls in the data we can use those, the analysts can use those to get there faster. Uh, I think they oversell what they can do and that a lot of organizations end up thinking that they can throw money at the problem, right? Mm -hmm. That, oh, we need to be data-driven, so we go and we buy this really expensive thing and now we will be data-driven. And that, unfortunately, is not the way to shift a culture. No, exactly. And wastes money and time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Another thing that you, when uh, in, in your book you have these six different areas that you usually uh, go through and yeah. one of this of course is understanding the context and and then afterwards is choosing the uh, appropriate uh, visual display how do you do that uh <laughs> great question uh, so yeah so the book starts out every workshop we teach starts out with understanding the context mm. so this is really about pausing up front and thinking about your audience what do you know about them or how might you better get to know them uh, what's the message you need to communicate this is where we typically will uh, practice and teach storyboarding as we talked about mm. and it's interesting to me because i think a lot of people come to our workshops or they arrive at the book thinking that they really want to know data visualization and are surprised to walk away with some of the things that they found to be most helpful or the things that they tell us afterwards are some of the things that we cover that aren't don't actually have anything specifically to do with the data Mm. it's really stepping back and thinking about the circumstances of what you need to do right who's the audience how are you presenting to them what credibility do you have with them and how do you make all of that fit together Mm -hmm. And then the next step is, mm. okay, you've done that. You've taken the time to figure out your message and make it work for your audience and yourself and plan your communication. But then when you have data that flows into that, how do you visualize it in a way that can create that magical aha moment mm-hmm. of understanding that data done well can do? And we spend a lot of time talking about your basic sort of graphs, bar charts, line charts. This is what we use the most frequently. This is what everybody out there will be using for most Mm. of their explanatory analysis because 
there's no learning curve, right? Your audience knows how to read them, uh, which means you're spending less time trying to teach your audience how to read the graph and more time focusing on the data and what does it tell us. And this doesn't mean there aren't use cases for other types of graphs, but I think we we go towards or we seek out something that's more novel in more cases than we should. Yeah. So anytime we use something unfamiliar to our audience, we're introducing a hurdle. Yeah, exactly. That we have to get them Like over. if you used a, a, scatter, a scatter plot with the kind of like three different elements in it, where, so the size of the bubble yeah. is, something and then it gets really hard for the audience to interpret it and say what is this actually what does it actually mean and then you have like 10 minutes explaining that instead of your point yeah Yeah. and it gets it gets hard to explain and have a conversation around and so yeah anytime you find yourself layering on multiple dimensions of data if you can get it back to some sort of pairwise comparison yeah uh, and then build from there and actually that's one strategy that we look at a lot and that the book covers and that uh, you'll see even more of in the practice book is this idea of when you have the benefit of being live in front of your audience don't just throw a full graph up in front of them mm. build it piece by piece right you can actually start with just the bones just the skeleton of the graph the, the axis titles and labels forces your audience to sit with you through the conversation of what they're going to be looking at before they can jump to the data because mm-hmm. you haven't even shown them the data yet you can also build some anticipation on the part of our audience that can be helpful in getting and maintaining their attention then you start putting the data on you maybe layer it on piece by piece right if it's data over time you could tell a chronological story of what happened over time, what was the context environmentally that that uh, played into that? Or if you're comparing you know, your product against competitors, you can layer them on and mm-hmm. sort of build to you uh, as a way of setting context and 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 bringing in some of these and uh, also emotions. Of story, yes, yeah. yeah, you get emotions if you bring your competitors into the visualization. Yeah. Everybody would be like, "Oh, get them <laughs> <Right>. away!" <laughs> this is where you can build some tension. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, also, uh, then moving on to uh, to uh, talking about clutter. Yes, because that's what that's one of my favorite topics. It was more um, maybe more in the past, especially with the tool side. So when you did something in Excel, well, you could do your your graph, and then uh, afterwards you could spend ten minutes, you know, just removing clutter. Yep. Could you just introduce maybe some of the listeners to, to what is clutter and why is it so uh, so dangerous? Yeah, clutter for me is just anything that's present in our visual communications that doesn't need to be, right? Mm. It's not uh, information bearing or it's not bringing in enough information to make up for its presence. And so one of the quickest but but highest impact lessons that we cover in our workshops in the book is just how do you declutter how do you Mm. recognize what clutter is and get rid of it Mm. and oftentimes it's simple things like you know you don't need a chart border your chart already looks like it's part of a um a whole thing without the border around it or grid lines we can take away uh tick marks we can take away axis lines axis labels in some cases and this simple process of removing things that don't need to be there helps our data stand out more Mm. and helps read reduce the perceived cognitive burden on the audience. So you imagine if you have a blank page or a blank screen, every single item, every element you put up there takes up cognitive load, right? It takes brain power to process. So by stripping out the stuff that doesn't need to be there, it means we can layer back in things that make our graphs more effective, right? Because mm. if we take out all of the clutter, we now have some more space to be able to write words around our graph without it feeling overwhelming or highlight something in a way that's not going to be uh, competing with other things for attention. I visited an organization yesterday, a, a quite big one, and, and they are trying to promote um, 
data visualization, self-service tools, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, the, the one of the the, the the methods is is maybe inspired not by by you, but I, f- I think you have something similar. But but this makeover Monday mm. w- wave, uh, which they use not every Monday, but one month Monday in, in in the month. Can you can you elaborate on on why such initiatives? Or how can such initiatives uh, make the skill sets better? Yeah, absolutely. So Makeover Monday is run by Andy Kriebel and Eva Murray. And so every Monday they put out a graph. It's typically something that they found in the media and invite people to make it over. And so many people do. And you can you, know, you can find um, examples on the website or on Twitter. is very popular to be able to see all these different ways that people are taking data that was maybe not presented ideally and trying different forms of it. And so it can be useful both for the participant because it makes you really think about the design choices that you're making and it frees you up from the everyday of your work environment but then also just as a uh, you know a bystander who can watch and learn from what they see other people do uh, and so storytelling with data we do a monthly storytelling with data challenge yeah. and so you can find information on the website uh, we are just doing the recap of last month and we'll have a new one coming at the beginning of July but we typically are focused on a particular graph type or a particular um, lesson from the book where we'll say, okay, this month, everybody create an annotated line graph. So go out, find some data that's interesting to you. And by the way, here are several hundred publicly available data sources if you're having trouble finding. So um, people have that resource. And then it's really about practicing Mm -hmm. and using some of the lessons that we talk about in the workshop or in the book or on the blog and putting it out there and getting feedback and iterating when it makes sense. And what we do then uh, later each month is we pull all of these together in a recap post. Mm. And so it's a nice way of uh, archiving examples as well. So we've been doing this for over a year now. So you can go back in the archives and see, you know, for the annotated line graph example, you can see a hundred different annotated line graphs that people have created from all around the world on all sorts of different topics. And so it can be useful for the user who's you know, wanting to get ideas or find something to emulate to be able to scroll through and see you know, where have other people done things that look nice or are effective that they can emulate or where what are maybe some of the pitfalls that mm. people fell into that they can avoid. And so I think is useful both from a practice standpoint for those participating as well as just from the archive that it helps create for people to look through for inspiration. Sure. One thing is telling stories. Another thing is asking questions. Mm-hmm. Where do you, do you see that uh, balance, or, or how, what is your opinion about or <laughs> thoughts on, on on asking good questions, uh, being critical towards data, and so forth? Yeah, you can't have good analysis with out asking good questions. And so from the beginning, right, uh, at Google, so I worked at Google for a number of years on the people analytics team. And at Google, every year we would run this massive employee survey. And we would have to be asking questions before we even developed the survey instrument so that we knew what data to gather to be able to get the right sort of uh, data. Uh, You just have to be very careful when you start asking questions that early and uh, hypothesizing how they will play out that, that you don't bias the way that you then look at the data. And that's why, so the beginning questions are important, but so are the questions that 
get asked along the way, right? Because especially if you're preconceiving stories and how things will play out, you need to be playing devil's advocate and asking each other tough questions and uh, investigating alternative hypotheses and the asking each other hard questions is how, you know, one, it's something that anybody who's working with data needs to be doing both for their own work and for those around them. Um, but that's how we are robust, right? And we, because uh, you can go really dangerous routes with data and uh, data can say anything you'd like it to say, yeah. Um, yeah. which is not what we want to do. Mm. Uh, and so questioning throughout the process to help, uh, to help the way we look at data and communicate data be robust. And then all the way to the point where you're telling the story about it, right? If still asking tough questions so that we're not painting a one-sided picture uh, or leading people inadvertently down a wrong path. Yeah, exactly. Because that that's another thing is uh, that, you know, with with great power comes great responsibility. Exactly. And, and, and internally at our, we have a, a Yammer site internally and, and uh, of course, a data visualization group where we post uh, different things. And one of the things that we like to post is um, different visualizations often we see in the in the news where, you know, you don't do, you, you, you get your message out, definitely, but you're actually cheating when you're doing that. So, so isn't there also kind of like an ethics uh, dilemma that you have uh, and, and a big responsibility? Yes. Uh, the golden rule for me with data visualization is don't lie with data. Mm. And I think, you know, we see bad examples of that sure. where it's done intentionally. Mm. I think almost more dangerous or at least equally dangerous is when it happens unintentionally, right? Mm. People aren't meaning to show things in a skewed way, but by virtue of design choices they've made that that sometimes happens, right? We chop off the axis on a bar chart or something else that mm. invalidates the comparison. And so it's another place where asking questions and holding each other accountable to help try to make everybody's work better. Mm. I think one of the sentiments that comes up or that's expressed to me sometimes when we talk about storytelling specific to data is that that there's a sort of negative connotation of well if we're telling a story where we're leading people maliciously down a certain path mm. uh, and this idea of bias and mm. unbiased in in data comes up and i think it's interesting for me because a lot of people have this idea that they want to attain unbiased data which actually doesn't exist right mm. we bias data at every step along the way we bias data by virtue of what we choose to collect in the first place we bias sure. it by how we aggregate it or disaggregate and what we show and what we don't show and so for me it's not about trying to show data in an unbiased way because i don't think that's um, achievable or even something we should be working towards but it is about asking tough questions and holding each other accountable and not leading people down misleading paths exactly. um, and and yeah, and being smart about how we do that. Yeah, exactly. And 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 it's, I don't know if it's funny because we have we have touched a lot of uh, skill sets already. Uh, you, you're talking about statistical thinking, uh, confirmation bias, mm -hmm. availability, heuristics, uh, system thinking. We need to <laughs> to understand the systems. Uh, we need to be good problem solvers, uh, good asking questions. How do you see all this? Um, democratizing data because we see a lot of self-service BI users, we see a lot of int BI, int BI users and so forth. They should be, uh, they should obtain those skills also. Yes, <laughs> I don't think that you necessarily though need to 
know what all of the terms mean, right, in order to be doing this well. Because I think when we, if we step back and simplify, it comes back to asking each other tough questions and making sure that we're thinking about things in a robust way. And yeah, you know, what we, we analyze the data we have because we have it, but what's the data that we don't have or, and how might that play into things and being clear on when are we making assumptions and when we're making assumptions, how big of a deal is it if those assumptions are wrong, right? Does that fundamentally change the direction? of things or does it just kind of change things around the edges and the answers to those questions then should help frame how we talk about our data whether it's data we communicate in the first place and then some of those other things you can have smart conversations that will push everybody in good ways without necessarily needing to be an expert on heuristics Yeah, and, and I can elaborate on, on, on that because I had a talk with um, a guy on at Wednesday. He 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 told me they were stuck in their data analysis habits, so they w- were looking at the data in the same ways that they did the last week and the month before that, yep. and so forth, mm-hmm. and 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 maybe not having that critical mindset or we're good at asking new questions. And that's where having new people come in and working on hiring people who are not like the people who are already there, right? Having yeah. there be diversity in skill sets and in backgrounds uh, can be a good reason for there being a good internal mobility, right? Of moving people from one part of the organization to another or, or pairing people up across different parts of the organization. This can be, by the way, one way of dealing with that skill gap that we talked about earlier between the highly technical data scientists and the non-technical you know, marketing, for example, is you pair two people with these complementary skill sets together and can uh, both help bring uh, both sides, uh, alternate skill sets uh, more up to speed, but then have some of these new insights that because people are coming at it with different lenses from different backgrounds, from different contexts uh, that can be helpful for avoiding that sort of analysis paralysis where we're just looking at the same thing every time in the same way because it's always, always, we've always done it. Mm. One one of the steps in, in your book is, uh, is thinking like a designer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of, Uh, the people in uh, our listeners and also a lot of people in, in BI departments, they're very great technical, uh, great with data, great uh, in analyzing data and, and showing showing data and also learn some of the disciplines when it came to, to data visualization. But but how do they think like a designer? Yeah. Or rephrase uh, the question, how does a designer th- uh, think? Ah, great question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that because I am not a designer. Um, I think it's funny though because this word design and designer scares people. Mm. When really, when I say designer, I think of uh, you know affordances. We can all recognize good design. It's when you pick a tool up and you know how to pick it up in the right way because it's been afforded that you do that. Or it's when you go to open a door and you do it the correct way because mm. you know the handle indicates how it is meant to be used. Uh, and we can apply those same sort of principles and the same thinking that comes behind it when it comes to how we communicate with data as well, which is, you know, when somebody looks at your graph, you want to make it clear to them where they should look and how they should interact with it and what they should pay attention to and what they don't need to pay attention to. And we can do this through visual cues by drawing some things forward, focusing attention on them, right? Making bigger, uh, more important things bigger, uh, using color sparingly to direct attention uh, by virtue of where we put things on a page and thinking about how our audience will take information in. Uh, Decluttering is another Mm. step Mm. in creating um, aesthetic and effective design. So getting rid of things that don't need to be 
be there. So if the word design scares anybody, it's really more about functionality, right? Of how do you make it clear how someone's going to interact with something and make that a pleasurable experience mm. for them. Sure, sure. So if we should sum up all these great advices to three great advices, what would that be? And it's a tough challenge. Uh, three. I'll take it one step further. I'll go two. Okay. How's that? So that's, my, that's the, for me, typically the lowest hanging fruit for folks when uh, communicating with data for explanatory purposes is two things, use of color and use of words. So first, color used sparingly to draw the audience's attention to where you want them to look. And secondly, words put around the visual, either in your spoken narrative, if you're talking through it in person, or written physically on the graph, if you're not there to talk through it, that tell your audience why you want them to look there. Those two things alone can go a tremendous way in overcoming other potential issues where maybe it's not the perfect graph or maybe there's some clutter present, but by focusing with color and putting words around it, you can still get your message across to your audience. And actually, I will add in a third one, which is always think about your audience. Mm. If you can design with them in mind, it'll answer all the other questions that come up. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks and for uh, me. of course, the book is uh, available online. Yeah. The next, next so, um, yeah, check mm. out all the resources at storytellingwithdata.com. Uh, we're on social media at Story with Data. And yeah, you'll find the book and the new book uh, available for pre order on Amazon. Yeah, it's a great book. And thank you for coming by here yeah. in Copenhagen. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you thank so you. much. You're truly a, a data rock star. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you.